this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke. And as you're turning there, a hearty thanks for the session and letting me be here. It's a real treat to come back and see you all, to see your kids growing up. See some of you with a little bit more gray hair and a little bit more around the waistline. It's always a joy to know that I'm in good company. And uh, I just, it's a real treat to be with you all. So we're looking today at uh, the, the text. It's probably very famous to, to some of you if you grew up around the church or if you have grown up around Christianity. This text about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a, a, a donkey or a colt. And so um, you might know this if, you've, if, you, if you're not new that pastors Brian and and Pastors Ryan and Darwin have been walking you through the book of Luke. And Luke is a writer who tells it slant. But he is somebody that is meant to make you uh, perk up and sort of see who Jesus is, who we are, and how we are to live in the world around us. And so today, we've also seen from our worship already that these are not just the teachings, though, of any mere man. Any mere man. They're the teachings of a king. And so we're going to look today at what this king has to teach us as he tells us about himself and about what Luke has to share with us about him as he enters into Jerusalem for his last few days. So if you have your Bibles there, I'll ask you to turn to 19, 19th chapter of Luke and to read with me beginning in verse 28. This is God's word given to us. It's given to us in love because he cares for us. And because he loves us, we would do well to listen to it. Let's read together. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and pray with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen. The grass withers. The flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us now by his spirit to understand what he would like to teach us this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. That You call us your children and not orphans, and therefore you speak to us. And you give us a sense of who you are and you speak to us in your word. And we ask now that you would, by your spirit, come and open our eyes to see Jesus. Lord, we need to see him no matter where we come from. Some of us having walked with you and loved you and known you for some time. And others of us coming to a church today for the first time in many years or perhaps ever. Curious about the truth claims about Christianity. 
Lord, others of us need hope. Others of us need confidence. Others of us need a profound sense of your love today. And so we ask that no matter where we are, wherever your grace finds us, that you would meet us and speak to us. And we lift this all up for the glory of our King. Amen. Well, there are uh, certain people whose presence unnerve us. Am I right? Uh, Just their mere presence sort of gives us a sense of unrest. Can you imagine for this somebody in your life? uh, Maybe their nearness to you caused you some sense of unrest because they were who they were or what they did or what they had shown up to do. I grew up in a suburb outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in a little town called Franklin. Franklin's an old Civil War town, for those of you that don't know it, and it's continued to grow over the last 30 years or so, full of charm and whatnot. But by and large, it's a quite affluent community, not, like, not unlike many of the ones that we find ourselves living in today. But it does have its pockets. It's sort of uh, underbellies that are riddled with poverty and street drugs and high levels of crime. Several years ago, one of my friends there, a pastor named Scott, he felt compelled by God to move into his life and his family into these dark parts of town. He was one of the few Anglos in a predominantly African-American community. He was older, his, well beyond his 50th birthday. He was bearded and he often had uh, struggled to walk with a cane because of his worn out hips. But he had a joy for life and a joy for the gospel. And he loved that community. His heart beat for social justice and racial reconciliation. And he loved that community. Well, the thing is, is none of the residents there knew that. (laughs) And so Scott tells the story one time when he was out on his porch and about five to seven youths walked up to the porch. Men in their 20s and late teens, even all the way up to their early 30s, they walked up to his doorstep one day And they said, and I paraphrase, hey man, we've seen you come into our neighborhood. There are not many white guys here. So we're going to ask you a question. And at this point, Scott could see their body language getting defensive. And he wasn't sure how to respond. And so they they proceeded. So man, are you a narc? Did you come here to rat us out to the cops? Scott thought about it for a moment, and his sense of humor took over, and he says, No, I'm not a narc. I'm far worse. I'm a pastor. (laughs) Now, churches today all over the world are celebrating Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the final week of their life, the final week of his life, commonly called Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was within days of dying. And as our kids have reminded us this morning, he entered with the flourish of a king. But like Scott's neighbors, Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus' coming will always unnerve us. It makes us uneasy. And you may say, how or why? Why would someone so meek and mild as Jesus, as he's often called, why would he cause such unrest? And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus has come to subvert And to upend the very agendas of our lives. He comes as a king, not as a personal assistant. And that means when he comes that all of our hopes and all of our dreams and all of our longings have to be reordered in the light of his coming. But the whole message of Luke must be remembered, friends. That this idea of it's getting worse as we move in the Holy Week is 
at best penultimate. For Jesus coming as our king has come to liberate us, to set us free from all the things that are killing us. And in short, therefore, we can agree with Mr. Beaver's words to Susan. When learning that Aslan is no man, but is instead the great lion, she remarks, well, is he quite safe? I feel quite nervous, right, about the meeting of a lion. (laughs) Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Well, who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's the king. He's good, I tell you. So we're looking today at the entrance of a king, a good king. And we're going to see three ways that Luke puts on display this entrance of the king. And the first that we'll consider is I would like for you to see that we're dying for a king. That we're dying for the king. That's my first heading for you this morning. And before we can take a look at exactly what is going on here when I say that we're dying for a king, we need to understand a series of different stories that are beginning to, co- to collide and to coalesce here in this, in this unique part of history during this first Easter week. Historian and writer Tom Wright in his book, Simply Jesus, points out for us that there were three crucial stories merging here. The first was a story of Rome. Rome was certainly the new superpower of the day. They were the occupying state in the land of Palestine at the time. Many years prior, after the murder of that very famous Julius Caesar, his adopted son, Octavian, was soon to ascend to power. He took upon his name the title Augustus, which meant worthy of honor. And he had declared that his adopted father, the one who just died, had become divine. It's important why. Because now, Augustus Octavian Caesar was known as the Son of God. Ask anyone in that day and age who the Son of God was, and Augustus was your man. Look at the inscriptions on monuments at the time, and they read this. Good news. We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become king of the world. He was, one, he was the one who ordered the census that sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And soon after his death in AD 14, his successor, Tiberius, took the same title. Here's the point. There was no doubt who was in charge in that day and age. Rome was. And Rome was determined to keep it that way. Secondly, not only the story of Rome, but the story of God's people, that is Israel. This was the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the story of Moses, who was God's chosen deliverer from the pagan Egyptians some 1,400 years ago. By the blood of lambs, God's people, you might remember, were saved from the oppressive rule of Egypt at that first Passover. And around 500 years ago, God's people began to return to Jerusalem, the promised land from Egypt, from, excuse me, from Babylon and the exile that they experienced. And yet, and it's a big yet, God's presence had never returned to be with them. He would one day come, yes, in the Messiah, but he would be the one that would certainly come and at one and the same time liberate God's people from all earthly rule, as it were. But now they remained oppressed underneath the Roman rule, which brings us to the third of these stories, the story of God himself. God had promised long ago, hadn't he, that he would return to be with his people He had promised to David that there would be someone from David's line that would always sit on the throne and reign God's people forever and ever and ever. 
But where was he? Had God forgotten his promises? After all, Caesar ruled. And God's people remained like they did under the Egyptians. They longed for God to return. As he promised, he said he would. This is what's going on on Palm Sunday. It's not merely that we have our children come in and wave palm branches to sort of occupy our kids' time until Easter. There really is a meaning that's pregnant that day. And what happens? What do the hopes of the people get expressed? Look at verse 37 and 38 to our text. He was drawing near, already already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and they take here from Psalm 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed in heaven. And glory to God in the highest. Why do they respond this way? It's Passover week. The time when God had acted mightily to overthrow the oppressive rule. And now Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know who his great, great, great and so on granddad is? It's David. Needless to say, the crowds were expectant. They were longing for the king to come. They wanted the world to be put to rights at last. And they're throwing their cloaks down on the ground as a picture of homage and respect to the king that is coming. The feeling. The day has come. God has finally come to put things to right. And now you might be saying, that's great. But what does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with me today on March the 25th? Well, here's how. We, like them, are still longing for a king to come. Still longing for our king to come and to put things at right. To make things, to make the world whole again, not only within our own hearts, but in the world that we live in. Palm Sunday is many things, but it is not less than a profound declaration Of our deepest longings. Here we stare. We stare our sorrows. And our aches in the face. And cry out. How long O Lord. How long until you come. And put things to rights. Literally Hosanna means. Save us now. It's a cry of the heart. Why? Fix once and for all. Our broken relationships. Where, where I can't get along with my spouse and my children. Hosanna. Where I long to be able to provide for my family, but I simply cannot make the bills meet. Hosanna. Where my addictions and where my sin have mastered me. Hosanna. Where the brokenness of a beautiful church is felt. Hosanna. Where injustice and racism and division, you get to the point where they fracture us. Hosanna. And where God seems so very, very far away, we long for a king to come. And this is not what our great authors throughout history have told us. Think about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Think about T.H. White and his once and future king. Arthur once. King once. And king again, Shakespeare's King Lear shows us the tragedy of a rule gone bad. And these stories tap into 
an old ache that we have, a yearning for the king to come and to fight our enemies for us, to defend us from those things that seek to kill us, and to order our worlds in such a way that all we can do is flourish. Are you longing for a king? Do you long for him to return and do this? Will you find your company with that crowd who is laying their cloaks down, crying out, Hosanna. Jesus' triumphal entry in Luke 19 puts on display the expectations for a king to come. And here the true king does come. And we'll see that these expectations were not exactly in line with Jesus' own in just a moment. But for now, it is way worse. Here's why. Because the coming of a king exposes what we really want. Palm Sunday not only shows us that we can't live without a king. It shows us too that we can't live with one. In fact, it's not too far of a stretch to say, secondly, that we'd rather die than have a king. That we'd rather die than have a king. You see, despite the fact that we long for things to be put right, we live this side of the fall, yes. But when Adam and Eve ate, theirs was the first act of sedition against a good king. We rebelled against our good sovereign. We said, in short, get your nitty-gritty hands Off of my life, I want to do what I want to do. I love that state motto, right, from New Hampshire. You know it when it gets spelled out. Live free or what? Or die. That's what our country was founded on, you know. It might be in our blood. We'd rather rather die than have a king over us. Remember Patrick Henry's famous cry, what? Give me liberty or what? Give me death. We know what this is like. We'd rather die than be told how to live. And that voice shows up there in verse 39. Did you catch it? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Their hearts reflect what is so deeply in ours. They were saying, teacher, stop your disciples' agenda for you and stop the agenda that you may be bringing and they reveal to us what we really want. And so when Jesus shows up, they can't stand it and neither can we because he has come to upend our rebellion and our alternative little fiefdoms. The writer Eugene Peterson puts it so well, the kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. You find this to be true in your own life? I know I do. Listen to this story. Kids, you might remember it. If you've ever followed or watched the movie The Lion King, you remember the story, the story of Scar. Scar is standing now with these little, his little henchmen, the hyenas, and here it is. They begin to cry out. Ready? They're ready to overthrow the rule of his brother Mufasa, the true king. And there's a saying where he is trying to prepare the hyenas for it. Banzai says this, yeah, be prepared. We'll be prepared for for what? Scar says, for the death of the king. What, is he sick? No, fool, we're going to kill him. Simba, too. Great idea. Yeah, who needs a king? And they begin to sing, no king, no king, la, 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 la. Then Banzai says, idiots, there will be a king. 
But you said, I will be king. Stick with me and you'll never go hungry again. We're like those little hyenas, aren't we? Who needs a king? When all the while, what? They're following Scar, aren't they? They found somebody already to rule over them. Somebody already to direct their lives. We're already, too, giving our lives and our loyalties, our hearts, our wants and desires to something else as well. And all of us, therefore, no matter who we are, are already making something scar or king in our lives. For the Pharisees in this text, you saw it, was, don't you? you saw it, didn't you? It was power and influence. Let me put this plainly. In other words, it was ministry. It was ministry that they were using to keep king over their lives. But for us, it might be comfort and ease of living. Just give me the good life with no problems. Is that king for some of you? It might be your career. We know what it's like to bow down to the demands of an unruly king there as well. Or it might be his parents like I so struggle with. Just give me good kids, Lord. That's the good king in my life. Just don't let them screw up my life. And let them represent me well. Because heaven forbid I might actually have to point them to the king of all grace that they might need one day. For our teenagers, it might look like popularity at school. Or it might look like fitting in with the right crowd. Here's the secret. We adults know this too, even still. But we're just a little bit more sophisticated with it than you are. It literally can be anything. And underneath it all lies the quest for this. Reign and rule. Control. That's what it's called. And all of us, myself included, are desperately afraid of giving up and losing that control in our life. And that's what I mean when I say we would rather die than to have a king. And so as we swing into this third point, can I suggest something to you? One of the reasons that we are so miserable, so sad... Is that we have and we live such neurotic lives at times. It's precisely because we have made these other things kings in our lives. Here's the image. We've walked into a cell. Closed the door behind us. Locked it from the outside. Thrown away the keys. And we're calling it freedom all the while. That's our lives. And so what hope do we have? What hope do we have, brothers and sisters? Here it is. How can we be set free? How does this ambivalence of we're dying for a king and yet we'd rather die to have one get settled? How in the world will the old ache be cured and our rebellion finally squashed? Here it is. We get a king who dies for us to set us free. That's what Palm Sunday is telling us. The key comes here. When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, you heard it there. He comes on the back of a colt, on the back of a donkey, and the city is greeting him. Then they accompanied him back into the city. They walk back with him. This is, this is the treatment of a true king. But what kind of king is Jesus? Did you notice that there? Much is made of, about him riding into a donkey, I mean, on a donkey into the city. We read it in our call to worship today from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Kings with something to prove, friends, rode in on war horses. It displayed their power, 
But how insecure they thought that power must be. Kings on colts, well, that's a king with a power and of a different kind. I love how one pastor puts it. A leader, of a, a leader of a coup d'etat rolls into a city or a tank or a war horse, as the case might be. But a true king approaches his people with nothing to prove. Riding a vehicle that's plodding. Reliable. And built for comfort. Like a limousine. Illegitimate authority is often marked by braggadocio and ostentatious displays of power. Legitimate authority, however is understated and secure. Look at our king. Do you see what he does? He too is coming to put on display his power, but not power in a a way that the world conceives of it. No, he is coming about to blast, he, he is coming about to blast Rome away, but how? Rome was not his real enemy, dear friends. The real enemy Jesus comes to Jerusalem to defeat is Satan, And sin and death itself. And so Jesus will use his power not only to subdue and to to defeat Rome. But will so do it as well for our own hearts. He uses his power not to ascend but to descend. He will go all the way down even unto death. He is weeping for those he loves. The gospel writer tells us. The king willingly gives up his life. You see, Jesus would take on the power of death and lose to it. And losing by it, in his death, he would sap the power in it for those whom he loves. Just listen to that. He would sap the power in it for those whom he loves. And when he does, he set, his free, he set us free from the power of the things enslaving us. An illustration. While you might be surprised that I know nothing about the sport of judo, I know. The point is using this, that you use the motion and movements of your opponents, I'm told, against him so that you might defeat him. An opponent might attack a defender, and as the defender falls, appearing defeated for but a moment, but then uses the opponent's momentum to best the attacker. And now they stand defeated. Do you know this? That Jesus in the same way. Leverages death. And all of its weight. Against itself. To put it to ruin. John Donne was right. Death. Thou shall die. And Palm Sunday reminds us. That Jesus takes on our rebellion. And squelches it for us. He takes our self rule on himself. And crushes it. Because he knows how enslaved we are and how we'll never, ever get out of it if left to our own devices. So he comes and does, as all kings do, to fight our battles for us. Paul is right. Free for freedom. Christ has set us free. And therefore, for those of us who know this sort of goodly rule, this sort of rescue and freedom, Jesus invites us to follow into his train and using our power in this way. Think about power this way. The old piece of furniture that gets re, refurbished, renewed, it's reused, it's repurposed. Do you begin to see that if you have been united to Christ by faith, 
That by his example and by his power, we are now called to go out into the world, in our neighborhoods, in our streets, and to use our power in the exact same way. To love the poor, to evangelize the lost, to plant churches and to do justice, to witness to the kingdom of our coming king. C.S. Lewis writes in his Mere Christianity, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise. And is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. In the thousand areas of life that God has put us in, we are called to follow him there. This is our aim to see our families, to see our friendships, to see our churches, to see our city, and to see our world flourish because the king has come. His presence unnerves us. We need Palm Sunday. We need it to remind us of what Jesus is actually up to and liberating us from our poor little agendas for ourselves. He has come to subversively work against our own autonomy that we think we might find life and joy in. He comes to die for sinners, for rebels, for those who don't want his rule. After all, dear friends, who apart from his grace ever does. No one does. No one does. And so Jesus comes. Several years ago, I read a story about a pastor that preached a sermon on Jesus as king and about what he had come to do to basically turn our worlds whoop, unside down, upside down, to turn what we value into sawdust and into rubble. He remembers being at the back of the chapel, shaking hands with people as they came by. And person after person said this, thank you, pastor. Great sermon. And it struck him. Great sermon. I just got through telling them that everything they are building and basing their lives on, Jesus has come to dismantle. Palm Sunday tells us this. This is what the king does. In a sense, you see, it really is far worse than we had imagined. And yet it's far better than we ever hope. Our king has already come. He reigns right now, protecting us from all the real evils that can harm us. And one day soon, he will return to mend what is not yet. And when he does, the world will finally, as Pastor Darwin reminds us often, get up out of its wheelchair and finally dance. Is that not amazing? That's what this king comes to do. And so I leave you now. The very famous passage from the return of the king, Tolkien's work. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence. For it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old. He stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat on his brow. And strength. And healing were in his hands. And a light was about him. What Tolkien could only approximate, dear friends. We get in full flower. What Tolkien could only point us to. We get to taste. We get to declare with mouth and with tongue. With body and touch. That our king has come.
That our king has died for us. That our king has rescued sinners. This meal is a declaration of the death of our king. Hallelujah. But do you know what this is also a declaration of? That your king loves you. That your king has bled and died for you. That if you have been united by Christ to faith, this is a declaration that I am loved by my king. And so therefore this meal is not just a Fort Worth Prez meal. This is a meal for any who have been united to Christ. And here is the thing. If this is not yet true of you, if this is not yet yours, we ask that you would refrain. And that you might consider the claims of this beautiful king who has come to subdue and to cause us to flourish. Perhaps today your heart has been changed and quickened. And if so, what a great Palm Sunday gift to this church to come and to come tell us about this. But please, if you know Christ, come celebrate here at this table with your king. Let's pray together. How could it be, Jesus, that you invite you, that you invite us, rather, to your feast? A feast for sinners. A feast for the king that was slain. The one who rode, into a don- rode in on a donkey and ended on a cross. And yet, wonder of wonders, walked out of a grave. Hallelujah. What great hope we have. What love we see, O oh, love of God, O oh, sin of man, here at this table. Would you now, O oh Lord, take these elements, set them apart for your holy purposes, and would you grant us faith? Would you change us? Would you feed us where we are weak? And show us our good king, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.